Hello and welcome to the last designated work meeting of Oh God, What Now for 2022. Get your cheese, get your wine. I'm Dorian Litsky and because it's Christmas, we've got the whole gang together, minus Ian, who's on holiday and missing out on all the fun, I'm sure. Boo. <laughs> let's, let's say you'll be flying back to, uh, to Omicron Island. <laughs> let's say hello to everyone. Uh, we've got no time for icebreakers because we have so much to get through. Naomi Smith is the CEO of Best of Britain. She hates Christmas. Hello, Naomi. Hello. I hate other things as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. Uh, Minnie Rahman is Interim Chief Exec of the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants, and she loves Christmas. Hi, Minnie. Hi, I do love Christmas. <laughs> Alex Andreu is a writer, commentator, and he's Christmas curious. Hello, Alex. Hello, Dorian. And Ross Taylor edits the LSE COVID blog, so she's just terrified of Christmas. Hello, Ros. Bar humbug. <laughs> On this last show of the year, we're going to take one final look at Johnson World, Lord Frost's disappearing act, cheese and wine on the back patio, Liz Truss stepping into the Brexit brief, and a cabinet divided over Omicron restrictions. Will this be Johnson's last Christmas as PM? Plus, we'll be looking ahead for a few reasons to be hopeful in 2022. And because it's Christmas, we're making the extended extra bit at the end of the show, usually for patrons only, available to everyone. What are the worst Christmases we've ever had and how did we survive them? So let's start with Boris Johnson's nightmare before Christmas. Since we last did a podcast, the Conservatives have been thrashed in the North Shropshire by-election. I know that seems like a very long time ago. Brexit negotiator Lord Frost has resigned due to the government's direction of travel. Liz Truss has replaced him. Cabinet Secretary Simon Case has recused himself from investigations into parties at number 10 when it emerged that he had been to a party himself. And a photograph has emerged of a lovely party on the patio behind number 10 in May 2020 when social distancing rules were at their tightest. Meanwhile, the hardcore libertarians that used to cluster around Brexit are now bonding over opposition to COVID restrictions and throwing even Nadine Doris out of their WhatsApp group for the crime of liking the prime minister <laughs> like that's literally all she did wrong Steve baker turned jackie weaver he was just like i've had enough of this shit liking boris johnson she was cancelled <laughs> man she was cancelled how good is that they've cancelled doris <laughs> um alex we know that lord frost often disagrees with lord frost but now he's parted ways with johnson as well <laughs> um why does he say he's quit and do we think that that's the full story so he says he's quit because he doesn't like the government's direction in terms of green policies he thinks they're doing too much to save the environment it's, it sounds just bizarre to say this out loud he disagrees with the high taxes and most of all with what he describes as coercive covid controls now he says it's because as a member of the cabinet, he respects collective responsibility because, you know, he's just that honourable. What a guy. What a guy. Um, but is any of this new? No. Is any of this within his brief? No. Has any journalist ever asked him for any view other than Brexit matters? No. So I'm not entirely buying that. Like his job, his job is Brexit. So if you don't, Disagree about Brexit. Just do the Brexit. Brexit man. <laughs> well, he says, he says he agrees completely about Brexit. That's the one thing he was very keen to make very, very clear. Now, the spectator reckon it was about Brexit. He, they say that Frost, and I quote, could only ever be as muscular as Johnson was prepared to allow him. Um, but there's a problem with that. 
in that he's the person that negotiated the agreement to start with. The spectator just glossed completely <laughs> over that. And the second thing is that the concession that the government has made on the ECJ was the most obvious thing that that has ever happened. And listeners of this podcast will remember me saying on a monthly basis that that is the one red line that will not be crossed for the EU because they cannot allow two authoritative but possibly conflicting interpretations of the rules of the single market to exist within the single market. That was just never, ever going to happen. So I don't buy that either. His resignation was timed to inflict maximum damage on an already wounded Johnson. So I think it has nothing to do with policy and everything to do with politics. I wouldn't be surprised if he's been offered a position by one of the rivals circling Johnson. Um, Naomi, we will talk a little bit about policy. The UK caving on ECJ jurisdiction over the protocol went almost unreported. Um, What's the state of the uh, Northern Ireland Protocol at the moment then? Well, you're right. It it did go um, almost under, well, it certainly went underreported. It almost went unreported. And that, I think, just follows that proud tradition of the British media not really caring about what happens over in Northern Ireland until things start exploding on this side of the sea. (laughs) Um, There is a bit of confusion here because... Yes, last Friday, it was reported that the UK was preparing to accept a role for the ECJ in Northern Ireland, i.e., as Alex says, in their own single market. Um, Just yesterday, though, a statement from Liz Truss in her new role, well, in her expanded role, um, said that the ECJ could not be the arbiter of any trade disputes. So there is clearly still some way to go before a proper agreement is reached. Before it was announced um, that, that Frosty was jumping ship, um, he was actually talking about something called an interim deal to ensure stability in the region. Um, so if trust indeed pursues another kind of stopgap, that's going to be pretty bad news for businesses in Northern Ireland. Um, like all businesses, they need certainty. Um, and of course, if they get it, they are ironically the only part of the UK with a chance of making a success of Brexit being both in the single market and the UK, you know, should be making them an investment magnet like Singapore and Lagan or Singapore and Foil, um, as people have referred to it. And the problem for the UK government is that Northern Ireland can't be the only part of the UK that makes the success of Brexit, mm. um, as it's the only part that is obviously ostensibly still in the EU. So they'll continue throwing their spanners into the works of the protocol, claiming it's because they can care about Northern Ireland, but Obviously, you know, that their track record proves that that's absolute horseshit and they couldn't give a flying soda fall about Belfast, um, uh, you know, unless it falls into the sea. So to that end, I think, you know, all, all eyes still on what's going to happen with the Northern Ireland Protocol and, and nowhere near enough progress has been made. Right. So Liz Truss is one of the favourites to succeed Johnson when he goes. Um, Brexit is was at one point meant to be important to this government. Um so has she been given this job, you think, because she's so, so super competent? Um, or <laughs> is, is there a little bit of a kind of poison chalice here that, that, that this is actually a very difficult uh, job and that this might tarnish her as, a, as, a, as the next leader? Possibly. There may be an element of that in Johnson's thinking when he gave her the job. You know, if you think you can do do this, then just try and have a go at Brexit. Yeah, that might have been an element, but I don't think it was actually that Machiavellian. 
I mean, I don't think many people want to do this job. Um, and it makes sense, really, for Liz Truss to have been given the portfolio because, of course, of her, of her role as foreign secretary. And in that way, it's 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 kind of logical. She does have an interest in making Brexit work and not in, in poisoning her reputation before she has the chance to move into number 10, which she does want to do very much. She will want and show that she can get things done. So while, yes, there has been a little bit of rowing back, as Naomi pointed out, on the European Court of Justice and the role in the Northern Ireland Protocol, it may well be for show in order to impress Eurosceptic backbenchers it's it's all in some ways it's all about sending signals and uh, sending signals to Europe sending signals to Eurosceptic backbenchers sending signals to business it's it's a, a very difficult three-dimensional game can we just talk very quickly though about how desperate she is Ross I mean you use that word I think or you know she is oozing yeah. <laughs> desperation for this show. it's yeah. measuring for curtains yeah yeah she is you're right Naomi it's it is uh, there's a whole you know she's always lunching people taking that for cocktails and there's all these kind of slightly embarrassing things she puts out on social media of her looking fairly regal slash presidential. Yeah. Well, she's also, I mean, she's had an exciting uh, intellectual journey um, as a kind of, yeah. as a kind of or, or pragmatic an, an ardent, ardent Republican when she was a young Lib Dem, a Remainer not long before the, uh, the referendum. And now a Brexiter. So, so who knows? Maybe there will be many Liz Trusses, as there were many Lord Frosts. <laughs> well, I mean, she was sort of a Remainer. Charles Grant at the Centre of European Reform popped up on, on Twitter today to point out that she was always quite Eurosceptic. And it was clear, she made clear to him at the time of the referendum, that she was not an ardent European. It was a pragmatic step to back Remain. So she is clearly a bit of a shapeshifter. And recently, she's been setting out a very anti-Russia and anti-China position. Basically, she wants to create a kind of access of the free world, if you like, where you know countries that that uh, value democracy, insofar as this country anymore values democracy, trade together and get on, and basically try to ostracize Russia and China. So she may have an interest in making the relationship with the EU work on those grounds. Who knows? Um, Many, no new restrictions came out of a long and fractious cabinet meeting on Monday with Javid and Gove reportedly in favour and Sunak, Barkley and Mogg against. Can we have any faith at this point, now that Johnson is so weak, that science is driving decision making rather than politics? Mm, I mean, my faith is particularly low. I mean, I think indecision or inability to make decisions is actually where COVID thrives and that's politics not science so you know you can look at the headlines from the last few weeks and there's a huge number of people from the scientific community saying that the government needs to take action you know even the public a recent comrades poll showed that the public are broadly in favor of some kind of lockdown or restrictions you know that's indicating that the choices the government is making right now are political the Tories have openly said that they're relying on the public to change their behavior which means they're also openly acknowledging that something needs to be done but they don't want to be the ones to instigate it and what we're actually getting is the the worst of all worlds which is a you know limited mandated control of the variant 
allowing cases to spread in the population, which is already having an impact on the NHS. And then you've basically got voluntary lockdown measures being taken by the public, which will damage the economy because the government is not putting enough support in place. And I think, you know, given the government's previous approach to lockdowns or restrictions, if they're saying we might need something in a week, the science is probably saying that we needed something two or three weeks ago. And I I just don't trust them to be following the science completely. I mean, I honestly don't know this time, obviously, that now the, you know, vaccines are uh, a component now that they weren't last Christmas. I honestly don't know if we need a lockdown yet. I'm very confused by this. I know that, but I do know that the sectors, the sectors are suffering um, if, if people are basically going into voluntary lockdown and and it's that, that seems to be a real um, problem because you can see theatres. Mm. You know, I just interviewed James Graham for the Bunker Daily, and you know that that play is is now you know on ice, as are many others. Um, lots of restaurants have kind of down to about sort of twenty percent of their bookings. There, there is that component to it as well, is that you can't just let people lock, you know, essentially sort of lock themselves down on on a social level. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there needs to be something, right? Like the government obviously has to weigh up um, how many people are fully vaccinated and boosted and um, what impact that is having on the NHS and, you know, the data on the variant itself and how, how far that's spreading and how ill it makes people. You know, there are decisions that need to be made, but I think there are various options that the government could take. And the fact that they're doing nothing whilst letting everyone else go into panic kind of indicates that they're not making sensible choices. It it feels um, too chaotic. The government shouldn't be letting the country go into chaos around them. Minnie, when I heard, when I heard Mog say, oh, you know, look, people are putting themselves into, you know, lockdown, go show, don't, you know, government doesn't need to tell people what to do because they can do it for themselves. I mean, it's a middle class lockdown. You know, those of us that can work at home and have our food delivered to us and don't need to run the risk can manage risk because we are able to. um, uh, And, and, you know, his sneering tone just said everything about how cut off he is from the vast majority of people who do not have those options. And and also to me, it's interesting to look at the other nations. I mean, if you look at Wales and Scotland – whether you like or don't like the decisions they they've made and the 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 sort of level of uh, COVID restrictions that they've applied, at least they've made a decision. They've said what's happening now, and they've said what's happening after the twenty sixth. Both of them have given business the certainty to at least plan. The problem with the English government because in this matter it is a devolved matter so they are an english government is that they don't make any decision they they keep saying let's wait and see let's wait and see but businesses cannot plan on the basis of wait and see yeah agreed um alex out there in normal person land uh, leeds united fans apparently saying boris johnson is a <laughs> the the famous wit of the terraces <laughs> there <laughs> And darts fans at Alexandra Palace chanted, stand up if you hate Boris. Uh, Alexandra Palace, I, I thought was a standing venue, so maybe that was everyone, um, and held up all back to Boris's signs. Um, this is not uh, the liberal elite. Um, is, is this a sort of bad a bad sign for him? And, and you know, is this, does this show that he's sort of losing people that he he thought that he had a good handle on because he's the funny clown man? I don't think it's even a transitive verb anymore. I think he's lost it. Um, there was a YouGov poll out today, 
has him at the lowest popularity since he won the election, puts him for the first time below Starmer in the who would make a better PM question, and by by a margin of 12 points, not by a bit. And in the same poll, 64% of people say they don't trust the government versus 10% who say they trust the government. Looking at those numbers, my verdict would be uh, he's oven ready. <laughs> Bung him in the microwave. Let's get Johnson done. <laughs> um, Roz, um, God, there's so much news this week. Um, Simon Case was on the case and now he's off the case. The case being <laughs> that someone who went to a party last Christmas can't investigate parties last Christmas. Um, why did nobody ask before appointing him to investigate the parties? Did you go to a party? Well, to me, Dorian, it makes perfect sense. I mean, if you're in the first scenario, as the PM suggested, the party probably didn't happen anyway because he wasn't aware of it. And logically, therefore, he cannot have known who was there if it didn't happen. And if he didn't know who was there, then he cannot have known whether Simon Case was there or not. But the the assumption must be that he was not since it didn't happen. The second scenario is that he was at the party, as reported. And in that case, surely the best person to investigate a party is one who was actually present there and knows exactly... And knows exactly what went on at this party because, you know, how can we know in this shape-shifting Schrodinger's party world whether it took place only someone who may well have been there? So if you look at it from that perspective, I think you'll find it does make sense. Oh, it's, tra- it's, it's, it's tragic that he didn't, he didn't stay and give us the inside scoop. Uh, Naomi, the photo of the cheese and wine party on the patio caused mayhem online with people um, who couldn't see dying relatives last May sharing their own painful experiences and I think this is it was quite interesting seeing some people say oh who cares you know who cares about the difference between a kind of you know a meeting and a get together but obviously many people who had suffered did care very very much do you think there are more Mm. photos and video clips to come let's not forget the one that looked like a a sort of still from the office (laughs) with jump jumper man and in the 70s buffet um, I really hope so, because I love a good sequel. Um, uh, I think, yeah, look, who knows? Who knows? Rumours circulate. Um, I think what this picture suggests, that the cheese and wine in the garden one, um, is that, that Christmas parties were not a one-time thing. It was not a case that the Prime Minister... Uh, deciding to bend the rules because everyone had had a tough year and needed a break, even though that would be bad enough. What this picture suggests is that they were doing this shit on the reg. Like this, this was this was ongoing. They were constantly bending the rules to meet their own uh, needs and wants and whatever else. Um, and that while we were all doing the right thing and the country was going through extreme hardship, they were they were flagrantly breaking the rules and not thinking twice about it. I mean, I can't remember the exact dates, but this was around the time when people were like being dobbed in for go- having a hike in the Lake District. Yeah. Um, yeah you- have you heard any exciting conspiracy theories about who took and leaked the photograph? Like, I think there's a clear sight line from the grassy knoll. <laughs> well, I think we can write off Megamind himself because apparently he's in it. And there have been some truly brilliant photograph forensics on Twitter where people have been comparing the bald spots of different people to see if he's a man. Um, Is it me? Is it done? (laughs) 
um, yeah, where were you on the, the 20th of May, 2020? Um, uh, and some people have been um, looking at this incredible website that allows you to track shadows on a particular day from a from a from a photograph, and it can tell you, it can basically give you the exact time that it must have been taken at um, because of where the shadows are landing. The photo was taken from within Downing Street, obviously, um, and it looks like it was taken pretty covertly. So it is difficult to avoid the conclusion that it was taken for the exact purpose of leaking it later on. If I didn't think that his priority was public health, I'd almost say Chris Whitty may have may have been the. Um, the the snappy rat in this scenario <laughs> <laughs> uh, because he is so clearly done with Johnson. Like I, I think we were watching a man get a literal stomach ulcer in real time when he did that presser with him earlier this week, or maybe it was Sunak. Um, you know, I uh, as as we know that the Chancellor's flat is there above number ten. It's a bit smaller. Maybe maybe it was him. Who knows? I just love the idea that he's just been going around like assembling a dossier, and he's just going just speak into the lapel, <laughs> Prime Minister. <laughs> Um, so yeah there might be more exciting stuff for the Rishi files to come Um, Minnie this we were accustomed to the government squashing uh, unpleasant stories by uh, declaring the matter closed Um, these matters don't want to be closed what's what's changed why is this sort of um, why is this scandal following the the uh, corruption scandal and and Erin Patterson why are why are they incapable now of just shutting things down like they used to? Yeah, I think the answer is is pretty simple. I think people are just really angry and really fed up. Um, you know, there's a lot of fatigue going on, and I think so many people are traumatized by the pandemic to extent to an extent that we don't really discuss about the huge national trauma that's going on. And if you think about um, normal level political scandals or crisis you know it doesn't have a repercussion or an impact on every single person in the country most of the time people are able to continue with their day jobs and might not even hear about it but this time every single person has made a huge personal sacrifice or they've mm. lost someone to covid or they know someone right now who has covid mm. or they're on the edge of cancelling their second christmas in a row you know this is personal so of course they're finding it difficult to squash a story where everyone feels personally affected by it and I also just think that one thing we have learned this year is that photographic or video evidence is something that the public connect with quite deeply and is very hard to ignore. <laughs> there also seems to be a lot of populist uh, antagonism towards the the excellent uh, foodstuffs cheese and wine <laughs> and perhaps if they'd gone for I don't know like a at some Nando's takeaway, um, there would have been been less resentment. No, because Nando's was closed at that time. Oh, they would have, and then they'd have, then they'd have uncovered. Then Rishi would have leaked a photo of a special <laughs> underground Nando's beneath Downing Street. That would have started the revolution. I'm pretty sure. Chill, <laughs> cheeky Nando's. Now, for this Christmas edition, we've racked our brains for reasons to be hopeful about next year. The last two haven't quite panned out as hoped. But to quote the great D. Ream, things can only get better. Um, Naomi, start us off with something to look forward to next year. Um, well, I can't talk about America uh, because the Republicans are probably going to hammer the Dems in the midterms. Uh, I can't talk about 
emerging from the Panny D because we need far more data on Omicron to draw any conclusions yet. And I can't talk about the world um, in general because it's melting. Um, so with not a huge amount to go on, two little things are giving me some hope. Um, first off, um, and bear with me on this one, um, is the country... <laughs> this is such a terrible start. To- <laughs> <laughs> I did say, I did say... This is, this, is like, te- like- this is like, tell me something happy, and you're just <laughs> like, well, here is... Here are three things that are awful. Awful, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you you said, oh, you're very good at, at rabble rousing. And I'm like, oh, I'm not really feeling it this year, Dorian. But anyway, I'm going to do my best. So here we go. Here we go. First off, bear with me. It's the country massively reaching a turning point on Brexit. Um, we're going to have new import checks coming into force next year. Some starting in January, others coming in September and November. And I think it's going to represent a real low point, the point at which we have the most additional admin, that, that we'll all really begin to feel it. Anything that, that we buy that is either direct from Europe as consumers or, you know, is, is finished here, but based on things that have to be imported. Still still not hugely filling the brief, I feel. But, 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 but I think that's the turning point because I think after that, I mean, I think most levers at that point are going to say, actually, this was a Brexit experiment and it hasn't really gone that well. 2022 is going to be the year where the poll numbers change radically in favour of being much, much, much closer to Europe. The second thing is a consistent lead in the polls for Labour over the Conservatives, because as sure as night follows day, if that happens, the Conservatives will get rid of Johnson and they will replace him with someone probably more popular or less unpopular than Johnson. And that person is clearly going to pivot away from the high tax, high spend culture of the past couple of years. And we know that that will be much less popular with voters than the high spend culture. So that leave vote uh, that they pivoted towards largely under sort of Cummings direction, those leave voters won't like the more libertarian style. Well, I would normally leave mine till the end, but it seems like I should probably put mine in um, here because I suppose it's the other side of the coin, which is Labour's um, pretty sturdy poll lead, more trustworthy, 44 to 24, um, more competent, 45 to 28, et cetera, et cetera. And in the latest YouGov poll, Labour had a six-point lead, but what's really interesting, I think, is the Conservatives at 30, and the only other party of the right is reform. Mm. which is five. So you've got 30, all the right of 35%. Now, normally when, when the Tories were really down in 2019, it was because of the Brexit party. In the past, it was because of UKIP. So I don't quite know where these people are going. And then if you add up the, if you add up Labour, Lib Dem, Greens, SNP, Plaid, you're looking at well over 60%. And in recent by-elections and council elections, those things that, that you know, they don't get reported mm. unless you're, you're a real political nerd. Um, there seems to be a lot of uh, Naomi's favourite thing, which is um, tactical voting. And there does seem to be, you know, not quite a progressive alliance, but a real sort of sense of confidence and momentum in the, in the anti-Tory ranks. And I do think I know. I know at times we've sort of gone, okay. Well, is Starmer actually doing something, or is John? Is he just standing there and watching Johnson fall over his shoelaces? 
But I do think that that shadow cabinet reshuffle was sort of was a good move. Seems to have held up. They seem strong. They seem election ready. Would obviously like more vision. A policy offer that when people say, "Oh, what do Labour stand for?" You could actually answer them very clearly <laughs> without saying, "Let me Google that for you." Um, so they, you know they, they've a way to go, but it just seems like enormously encouraging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Minnie, what about you? Yeah, I'm going to do my usual just earnest I love people thing. Um, You know, this year has been really horrible for a lot of reasons, as Naomi has pointed out very kindly, Um, but particularly hard for for people of colour and migrants. And what I have noticed this year, as the year has kind of progressed and things have gotten increasingly more dire and more toxic, more people than I have ever noticed before have been really vocal and outspoken and people that I would not have expected um, have come and asked, you know, what they can do to help where they really wouldn't have been doing that five or six years ago. You know, some of Brexit was being afraid to talk about things like migrants' rights or, or, you know, general human rights. So I'm really hopeful that next year we'll see a lot more people come together and start challenging things, particularly in their communities, or just start doing some of the things that don't seem so radical, but actually are in such a hostile context, you know, like spending time in community groups or teaching English or welcoming people into their homes. Um, And I also just want to do a very personal thank you to a listener called Joe, who made a a generous donation to JCWI after listening to the show. And it made me so emotional and so grateful and so hopeful that it it needed to go in this section. Um, So, yeah, I think for me, it's just always hope over fear. People are good and kind and generous and we just have to trust them. Oh, that's so lovely. (laughs) I'm so earnest. (laughs) Oh, man. You see, now that is meeting the brief. <laughs> um, Roz. Vaccines. Vaccines are great. Because, you know, not COVID is not the only horrible disease in the world. And I'm thinking particularly of the new malaria vaccine, which has basically been approved for a big rollout in the last couple of months, for a big rollout in 2022. Malaria is a horrible, horrible disease. It kills a lot of kids in Africa. Uh, kills a kid every two minutes, in fact. And two thirds of the people it kills are under five. It is a horrific, horrific disease. And some countries spend nearly half their public health budget just trying to tackle malaria. So there's been there's a new vaccine now about to be rolled out. It's taken 30 years to develop. As it happens, BioNTech, which helped develop the Pfizer vaccine, is working on its own new mRNA potential malaria vaccine. But in the meantime, we've got a vaccine which isn't nearly as effective as the COVID vaccine, but will still, because it's about 40% effective, make a huge dent, hopefully, in the number of kids who die from it. And hopefully, we'll see more and more vaccines in 2022 coming on stream and becoming thinkable because mRNA is such a remarkable new technology and allows you to do so much more. And that is that is a fantastic development. And I'm, I'm excited about that. Alex. So um, I, I'm going to take the general domestic theme that uh, you and Naomi outlined and, and broaden it out and, and, and say that, you know, in Gabriel Boric, uh, a 35-year-old lefty activist who just trounced uh, José Antonio Cast in Chile 
on a pretty high turnout to win the presidency there, being added to people like uh, Andres Manuel López Obrador in Mexico, uh, Gustavo Petro is leading in the polls in Colombia. You see it all over uh, Latin America, and it feels like a real anti-Bolsonaro uh, uh, drive, and, it, and by extension, an anti-Trump uh, sentiment. Uh, Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva, by the way, is predicted to beat Bolsonaro comfortably next year in Brazil's elections. And then you come over to Europe and you see the same thing happening. Of course, loads of caveats. You know, the, the, there are exceptions and there are peculiarities to, uh, to each uh, country's politics. But you know, when you see Jonas Garstore in the Norwegian Labour Party giving a clean sweep across Scandinavia now to the left, Olaf Scholz coming in as the new Chancellor of Germany, Bulgaria just elected a, a centrist um, liberal, you see extreme parties dropping in Italy, in Portugal, in, in, in Spain, the Partido Socialista is coming back. Even in the Swiss cabinet, the star is a socialist called Alain Berset. Um, and so, like I said, many a slip twixt cup and lip, of course. Many peculiarities exist and many exceptions to this exist. But comparing it to five years ago with, with Brexit, with Trump, with Modi, with uh, Orban, with even Norway having a coalition of uh, center-right and far-right, it, it just feels like that wave of center-right um, populism crashed against the shore and is now retreating. And the general shape of things is that the the left and the centre-left and the centre are coming back. I, I don't know how closely people were following the, the, the Chilean election, um, but I was, and, and you say, you say, tr you say trounce, which is, which is true, but I was quite shocked that Cass still got 44% when, because um, I thought, okay, right wing Bolsonaro-y kind of dude, um, and I was like, oh, really into Pinochet, and I'm like, okay, fine, keep looking, you know, keep reading about him. Oh, his brother was actually a minister under Pinochet. <laughs> okay, yes, no. his father was a Wehrmacht officer, and if you look at his father's Wikipedia page, there he is in his uniform with a swastika on his arm. Yes. And I was, and I was like, it's quite rare to find someone where you can literally get your dad was actually a Nazi. <laughs> yes, all of that is true, but you have to put it again in the context of in Latin America of someone like uh, Boric being constantly attacked with the paradigm of Venezuela, of, of saying we will become another Venezuela. And in those circumstances, I think, to achieve such a big, clear lead in such a strong direction from the voting public that this is this is a reaction specifically to people like Bolsonaro. I think I think it is a big, big victory. Yeah. Well, there we go. Um, what an exciting year we have ahead. Before we wrap up the main show, there's just time for the panel to spotlight the stories that maybe we're not paying enough attention to in a special listener service we call Under the Radar. Uh, Ros, do you want to start this one? We're definitely not paying enough attention to Afghanistan. 
Uh, I know we don't want to, and you know there was a recent outrage over how poorly organised the evacuation was, and the special privileges given to Pen Farthing's dogs, and we should rightly be outraged about the way that was done. But what is happening in Afghanistan now is far, far more serious than the issue over the dogs. It is on the brink of famine in many places. I mean, the problem, the terrible problem that the US in particular has is that it basically cut off some funds to Afghanistan when the Taliban returned to power because of what the Taliban were doing and the fact that they are basically, they have basically banned girls over 13 from going to school, for example. And yeah, we, we don't we don't like the Taliban, but what well, is happening I want to make now, that perfectly clear. There has been some ambiguity in the past. But. <laughs> there has been some ambiguity in the past, but the fact is, as people you know are now making clear, the state was pretty corrupt when the US and NATO were nominally in charge, and now it's just falling apart completely. Hmm. And it desperately needs help at the moment. And how the question is how we can do that without propping up the Taliban, if we can even do that without propping up the Taliban, and not just abandon these people who we were supposedly so concerned about 20 years ago that we had to launch a full-scale inv- invasion to save them. It, it, is a, it is a terrible situation that we find ourselves in, and we have basically turned our faces away. Well, I should refer people to uh, to last week's episode with Kim Gattis, who, um, who who did feel more confident about us actually being able to provide aid without that going, without simply kind of helping the Taliban. Yeah, I mean, if it's done sympathetically, yes, but it, it, it they are in a terrible place right now. Alex, so um, if you're if you're a, a little bit of a, a legal geek, have a look at the avalanche of lawsuits pouring in against the the congressional committee that's investigating the uh, 6th January attack on the US Capitol. The latest one being Michael Flynn, who has sued them in federal court in Florida, alleging that a subpoena issued to him uh, basically punishes him for his constitutionally protected free speech as a private citizen. Um, All the people from whom the committee is seeking information are trying desperately in one way or another to avoid giving documents, uh, telephone records, all of that stuff. And I just think Michael Flynn's case, uh, him saying, look, I'm just a private citizen. Why are you trying to get my records? This infringes my free speech, is a beautiful counterpoint to Bannon's rejected claim that he was still covered by executive privilege, even though he hadn't worked in the in the White House for years um, before the point at which he's being asked for information. So they're trying to claim both that they're just private dudes going about their ordinary lives and that they are somehow protected by executive privilege because they were working for the White House. And uh, the whole thing is just a delicious legal mess. Um, Minnie, what's your under the radar? Yeah, so I want to spotlight a huge court case victory that JCWI was involved with this week. Um, So our client was one of four asylum seekers who were 
jailed for helping to steer small boats across the channel. And this week they won their appeal against their convictions. Um, So the Court of Appeal recognised that the Crown Court in Kent, where the men were convicted and sentenced, had made fundamental errors. Um, The judgment makes it pretty clear that the government wrongly imprisoned four very vulnerable people just because of the way that they entered the UK. Um, And why that's important is because it has very big repercussions for the Nationality and Borders Bill, um, because the foundation of that bill is is based largely on criminalising asylum seekers for the way they enter the country. Mm. And the judgment says pretty clearly that they they shouldn't be doing that. So it's an important win because four people who were wrongly convicted have now had their sentences um, revoked. So I, I think it will spark some interesting discussion as the bill continues in the House of Lords in January. And it's definitely something to keep an eye on. Cool. Oh, well, congratulations on that one. Yeah, it's great. And now please be upstanding for Her Majesty the Queen. Hello, Britain. Next year, my government is preparing to bring forward a suite of legislation that will roll back many of our democratic rights. From the policing bill that will stop you being able to clog up the streets around my palaces, to the elections bill that will strip the independent watchdog of its oversight function and hand powers to ministers, through to the rowing back of our judicial review processes and the media being able to protect their sources, 2022 will be the year Britain changes forever. I may be an unelected head of state, but I am most displeased by this brazen act of authoritarianism. And so, while you gather safely with your loved ones this Christmas, I ask you to do three things to combat it. First, I've heard that a a young chap called Ian Dunt is rather fond of my son Charles. Please, (laughs) do back Ian's podcast, Oh God, Watch Now, on Patreon. (laughs) Second, I can't bear to see those poor people suffer as they cross the channel to reach our green and pleasant lands. So please support the Joint Council for Welfare of Immigrants. <laughs> After all, most of my family are from immigrant stock. And finally, there is no more patriotic organisation than Best for Britain. So if you are able to, please visit their website, <laughs> bestforbritain.org support, and help them in their endeavours to hold my government to account. It is in that spirit that I wish you a very Merry Christmas. Brilliant. Yay. That was, even a young Liz Truss would have been swayed <laughs> to the monarchy by that one. <laughs> and that is the end of the main show for 2021. Hang on for the extra bit. Thanks and happy Christmas to Alex Andreu. Thank you. Naomi Smith. Thank you very much. Minnie Rahman. Thank you. And Roz Taylor. Happy Christmas. And also Ian, who was somewhere fun and hot. And thanks to everyone for listening. We're back in the first week of January, but keep your ears open for a special Now That's What I Call Oh God What Now compilation show between Christmas and New Year. There's some of our highlights of 2021. We'll be back for the extra bit after the traditional end theme by Corner Shop and the names of some of the Patreon backers who have supported us all year and kept us going. Have a great Christmas. Hello and happy Christmas from me to Carl Foster, Emma, Paul Longhurst, Steve Bolbeck, Matthew, Sharman Haig, and Ella Gray Thomas. A big thank you and kales your des from me to Phil Maguire, Gail Labrum, Chris Rose, David Smith, Andrew Martin, Georgina Constanta, and Joe. Huge thanks for your support and happy Christmas to 
Adrian Skilling, Monica, Max Davey, Sarah Armstrong, Ben, Jim Date and Mark. Hello and a massive thank you from me to Hayley Gullen, David FCH, SMCM31, Michael McCochtree, Hani Al-Yusuf, Ben Latham and David Lewis. And festive thanks for me to Andrea Rouse, Diane Hamer, Alec Fitzsimmons, William Webster, Alison, Anna Dubai and Claire Nurk. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producer was Andrew Harrison. Assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And audio production was from me, Robin Lever. Art direction is by Mark Taylor. And Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Hello and welcome to The Extra Bit. It's usually available only to Patreon backers, but for Christmas, we're opening it up to everyone. (laughs) If you like it, and why would you not? Treat yourself (laughs) to backing us on Patreon and you can enter our exclusive grotto every week. (laughs) God, that sounds filthy. filthy, Speak for your grotto. (laughs) (laughs) No one's coming into my grotto. (laughs) (laughs) This time we're talking about the worst Christmases we've ever had. And how they have made us the people we are today. Uh, who would like to start us off? I mean, I can start because I, I actually disagree with the premise of this. As a, as a Christmas enthusiast, I've never had a bad Christmas. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Like, I yeah, I don't know. I don't understand what has been so bad about Christmas. I mean, I've had some like boring ones where it's been a bit like oh I have eaten too much and it is too cold to go outside and then I've watched six hours of tv but I don't think I've ever had like a big bust up or burnt the chicken or turkey or anything like that so I'm kind of gonna have to drop out of this one guys (laughs) miss perfect (laughs) I did feel quite smug then (laughs) well I was trying to think of a really bad um uh Christmas and all I could and and I couldn't, I mean, I could think of one where basically, uh, and I can't remember exactly the details, but we had like um, no money uh, that year. And I remember a letter being written by Santa Claus. Um, no, I realized it was not written by Santa Claus. <laughs> um, but at the time, I believe it was. I also believe he appeared to have some kind of like sort of an alcoholics kind of palsy because basically it was sort of like my parents writing, but just incredibly shaky. Um, apologizing for the fact that there were basically no presents. Um, and then my dad, oh. my dad actually sort of made a, a Star Wars at at um, out of oh. out of bits and pieces. And so I thought, OK, that was obviously like a rough one for the family. But looking back, it was sort of quite a rather um, it was sort of rather lovely. And we, we were, and we were mm-hmm. actually, um, you know, there was no kind of like bad blood or anything. And uh, and so actually it was quite nice. So, so like Minnie, it's like I don't think I've ever had. Um, I have many unpleasant memories in my life. Don't you worry. Um, <laughs> but, but, but none, of, none of them are specifically attached to Christmas. Um, yeah, let's talk about any other time. <laughs> not Christmas. The rest of the year is basically just hell, but not Christmas. Um, so, so I don't know. Um, Roz, help us out. Oh, that's very. That was very touched by that. I, I suppose it's it's an odd thing because for twenty years, the first twenty years of my life, I assumed that my Christmases just couldn't get any worse. They were always so fraught, and my father was often not speaking to us for one reason or another. 
At other times, he was violent, and and there was incredible tension with my uh, maternal grandmother, who would sometimes say something racist over the Christmas lunch. And I just thought this this really can't get any worse. And so, you know, when I started getting boyfriends, and Christmas came around, I obviously seized the chance to go to their place instead for Christmas because why wouldn't I? And I remember the first Christmas I did this, and it was such a terrible disappointment and shock. Because there were no rows, which was great. There were no people not speaking to each other, which was great. But they did everything differently. They didn't do Christmas properly. There was no midnight (laughs) mass to go to. Christmas lunch was not roast beef and Yorkshire pudding and roast potatoes and Brussels sprouts and gravy as it has to be. The Christmas decorations were all wrong and different. And <laughs> and there was a Christmas tree, which was also wrong because my mother always refused to have a tree in the house. She never could never have cut flowers or a tree in the house because she didn't like bringing something into the house, which she would watch die. We would actually go out to, <laughs> yeah, we would actually go out to woods. And I, I do respect her for this. We, we would go out to woods and things and we would pick up branches and then we would take them back and we would spray paint them gold and silver outside. And then we would hang baubles off them and put them in vases. That was what we did instead of Christmas trees. And it was also a lot cheaper, of course, which was a big advantage. And it the dreadful realisation struck me, not to mention the fact that worst of all, that I had abandoned my mother to my father on Christmas Day and left her alone with him, uh, the poor woman. Uh, and the dreadful realisation struck me that Christmas is not actually to be enjoyed. It's not a party. It's, a re- <laughs> it's not there to be enjoyed. It's a repeated communal ritual. And you don't approach it as fun or with the expectation as fun. You approach it as a day in which you have certain traditions that you perform and certain things that are familiar. And quite often it, it might be tense or unpleasant. But hey, you know that. And it comes around every year. And the reassurance that, that the fact it comes around every year provides is its own reward (laughs) so that was my terrible realization is this why you got sacked from the uh the christmas card company (laughs) (laughs) that was i mean the idea of just not having because you don't want to watch something die i'm now gonna have to i'm looking at my christmas tree now Um, Alex. So my first Christmas in the UK, so I arrived uh, end of September 1990. I hope you're listening to this home office. I arrived end of September 1990, and my very first Christmas here, I was living in a very grotty uh, bedsit somewhere in Dulwich. And when people said nothing is open on Christmas, I thought, well, yeah, okay, so shops are closed. I didn't realise the extent to which nothing is truly open on Christmas Day. I had no idea that there would be no transport on Christmas Day um, because I was used to a situation where everything closes, but then the bars and restaurants open late at night because people go out in Greece and everywhere else I've been in Europe, actually. And so... On Christmas Day, I was basically left with nothing to eat. Everything was completely shut. And there was no internet with which to check whether something was open or order something. So I walked from Dulwich in the cold about an hour and a half to Camberwell, where there was a 7-Eleven that was open 24 hours 
a day, seven days a week, including Christmas, and got myself a couple of packets of dried tortellini, went back to uh, my grotty bedsit and had that (laughs) for Christmas completely on my own. So that was pretty shit. Yeah, It's an hour and a half from Dulwich to Camberwell. You took a long route. No, no, it's it's not close. It's not as close. And as he was weak with hunger. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's not that. It's just the Seven Eleven used to be the top of uh, Camberwell New Road. Ah, right, right, right. Elephant and Castle. So it's actually yeah, quite, is, quite yeah, a that's trek. That's a good bit further. Yeah. That is basic. That is one of the things where I get very like uh, with with my uh, daughters. Very much like well, in my day, you know, those days like Christmas or just Sunday. Where it was like literally the country was like, well, there's nothing. You don't need to stay in. Nothing. When nothing. <laughs> nothing is happening. Uh, and it's sort of it's quite it's sort of quite hard to comprehend. Um, Naomi. Well, easily uh, the worst one was last Christmas because my dad was dying uh, in a hospital. We didn't totally know he was dying at that stage, but he'd had a lot of deterioration over 2020 lockdown. Um, I think the lack of socialization had really impacted both his mental health, um, but also his physical health because he just didn't need to have to keep pushing himself to, you know, get up and go and answer the door or tottle down to the pub or whatever. So he declined quite a bit um, during 2020. And then he had a fall in the night very early in December and my mum couldn't get him back up. And so rang an ambulance and they were concerned about his heart rate. So in he went, uh, to York District Hospital, um, and at that time they and it was it was different by then. At different hospitals were following different rules in terms of who could come in and out, but but York were being incredibly strict, and there was absolutely no way we were going to be allowed to go in and see him. Uh, COVID restrictions were such that you weren't allowed to travel, of course, last Christmas unless it was for caring responsibilities and or somebody um, who was who was at the end of their life, and so I. Uh, felt that I did have the the flexibility to do that within the rules and so I traveled up and I was able to see my dad through a window um uh while he was um while he was very confused and very lonely and very angry um and that was horrendous um and so we we pretty much cancelled Christmas um we did go and see him sort of three or four times on Christmas day itself and took the dog with us and he managed a little wave at us um, but, but you know, incredibly sad and incredibly horrible. But that's not the reason I hate Christmas. I hated it for a long time before that. I think I used to love it when I was a little kid, um, very little. And then I v- distinctly remember a Christmas when I was about seven um, and I had been sat next to a horrible male member of the extended family um, because I was the child that was deemed to be you know the most mature that could handle him being an ass and none of the adults wanted to sit next to him and he must have said something horrible to me because I burst into tears and my I remember my mum just screaming across the table what have you said to my daughter and by then the adults were all you know a couple of bottles of wine in each and big rows erupting and and us you know getting in the car and going home um and then ever since then, just being aware that, yeah, Christmases are high pressure. And like your story, Dorian, when I heard that, I was just like, that's why I hate Christmas, because your parents probably felt terrible and under huge pressure to deliver this amazing thing for you and, you know, and weren't able to. And yeah, 
So anyway, what, no, if anyone... what, what amazing! They defrauded him. <laughs> <laughs> they defrauded him. They wrote him a letter from someone that doesn't exist. But all parents, all parents That's... do that and pretend that there's a tooth fairy and a. That's why yeah. their their trustworthiness approval rating really plummeted. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably why my why why I feel like I've always had a good Christmas because like because not being you know it's not it's not a religious aspect for me and I think probably um, Pakistanis have a very low pressure approach to Christmas so it's very like you know I think for the first like I don't think we really did presents um, until we were maybe like a little bit older and kind of asked for them so like the first ten years of my life we probably didn't get presents and didn't know any different. So then from that point mm. onwards, it was like, oh, this is very nice <laughs> because now we get a present um, and we don't don't have the whole extended family around and there's definitely no alcohol. So <laughs> that yes. probably changes oh, yeah. the dynamic well, quite I, a bit. <laughs> can I say Can I say that, that as a benchmark, and I find this very interesting, uh, of the difference between the 19-year-old me versus the 50-year-old me, I cannot think of anything better right now than spending Christmas completely on my own, eating tortellini <laughs> oh, in my dressing gown and watching telly. It, yeah. <laughs> what, what was hell to me back then would be heaven to me now. Well, um, we asked the number 10 press office what Boris Johnson's worst Christmas ever was. Um, but but they, they didn't get back to us. I don't know. It seems perhaps it's a sore point at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> it remains to be seen. I yeah. think. <laughs> this one is a strong contender. Ask in three days. Time. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's not looking good. We're really hoping to pull it, turn it around on Christmas Day. <laughs> <laughs> And that was the one-off Santa's Grotto extra bit for the last Oh God, What Now of 2021. If you'd like the extended ad-free podcast every week, plus bonus offers galore and our weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, just search Patreon, Oh God, What Now, and sign up. Thanks for listening and have a great Christmas. We will see you in 2022.